If you got your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we will be in verses 13 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we will be in verses 13 through 20. Um, if today is your first time in our class, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we started uh, the first week in January and started with chapter 1 and verse 1, and we have made it up to chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Um, we're going to continue with our lesson from last week. We started uh, about the middle of chapter 6 last week, talking about the Christian and sexual freedom. Uh, it, it's Paul's subject in chapter 6. He basically starts out uh, telling people not to sue one another, and he ends up talking about sex in chapter 6. And so we covered last week uh, how he got to that. Now, we mentioned last week that to the Greeks, you, you have to kind of go back in time and understand the situation that Paul was writing in. And to the Greeks, uh, which was very... Greek philosophy was very influential uh, on the Romans and the Corinthians and that whole society. Men like Plato and uh, uh, Aristotle and Socrates, they had a huge influence. And to them, the body was just temporary. Okay, uh, In other words, the body's just here for a little while to eat food and drink and have sex, and then it dies and goes away. What's really important to them was the spirit. That's what matters. To them, the body had little to no moral significance whatsoever. It was the spirit, what you know, what you think, what you believe, that was important. Okay, now as we mentioned last week, this philosophy had kind of come into the church and we see this philosophy stated in verse 13. We saw this last week. Paul says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. What he's doing there is he's quoting a slogan, a Greek slogan or a Greek philosophy um, that the Corinthians kind of kind of live by. Well, you know, food's for the stomach, and the stomach's for food, and they're both at the end of the day, they're both going to die and be destroyed. It's no big, no big deal. Now, Paul, of course, starting last week, disagrees with that vehemently. He said, "No, that's that's foolishness. That's the wisdom of the world. This is the way it really is." And Paul says this: the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and He will also raise us up by His power. Now, Paul says, you know what? I agree with you. The food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. He's actually agreeing with that. What he's saying is that the stomach, its purpose is to digest and, and deal with and expel food. That's what it was designed for. That is its purpose. Food was meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. I agree with you. But Paul says you cannot say the same thing about sex. That, it doesn't work the same way. You're comparing apples and oranges. It's not the same thing. You can't say, well, the body was meant for sex and sex was meant for the body. It's just a physical thing, a biology thing. And one day the body's going to die and all that stuff doesn't matter. Paul says you can't, you can't say that because you're comparing apples and oranges. And he gives us two reasons last week. Number one, they have different purposes. He told us that. He says this, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. In other words, that's not its purpose to engage in sexual immorality. Its purpose is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Sex may be something the body does, but the body's purpose is to be used for God. Okay, that's number one. The second thing he says is the reason they're different is he said food and the stomach and all that is temporary, but the body is eternal. 
He says one day, God, he said God raised the Lord, and one day He's going to raise us up by His power. This, this body is going to be transformed. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be eternal. The same way that God gave Jesus a glorified body, He's going to give us a glorified body. So this body's not temporary. So what we saw last week is what we do with this body matters. This, what we do with this body is significant. It, it really has purpose and, and it matters what we do with it in this life. Now, in the rest of the chapter here in chapter 6, Paul is going to expand on this subject of sexual immorality even more. And he's going to give us more reasons uh, why it's wrong and why it's not meant for the body that way. But before we go there, there's a couple of questions that I think we should probably ask and answer. And that first one is this. What does Paul mean by sexual immorality? He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Okay, well, Paul, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, the Greek word used there for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And if that word sounds familiar, it's where we get the modern English word pornography. Okay? The, the word in the Greek, it's a, it's a pretty cool word. It literally means to sell off. That's literally what the root word means. It means to sell off. It has the idea that you're selling off your sexual purity. You just sell it off to the highest bidder. That's basically what that root word means. Now, in the English translations, when we translate the Bible from the Greek, we translate that word porneia into two words. In the old King James, it's fornicate. Okay, you ever go to, if you're ever doing research and you see the word on a website and you go to fornicate, you know that's a King James guy right off the bat because all the King James people love that word fornicate. But the newer word translations, NASB, ESV, New Living Translations, they'll just translate it. Nobody uses that word fornicate in the English language anymore, so they'll translate that word to sexual immorality. Now, in the New Testament, that word is... Uh, usually, though not always, porneia can kind of be a general term that covers all types of sexually immoral acts. But usually, usually, it refers to the sexual acts of unmarried people. Now, we're actually going to see this next week in 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Let me quote this for you, and you can see this very clearly here. I'll give you a couple of examples. It says this, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and there's that word porneia, because of the temptation to porneia, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay? Now what we see there in that verse is, is Paul is clearly saying that in, in order to overcome the temptation to porneia or sexual immorality, a person should get married. Okay? Therefore, by implication, we understand that the sexual immorality he's talking about is sexual acts outside of marriage. Is that clear? I mean, you can see that really, really clear in that verse. He's saying, look, in, in order to avoid temptation to porneia, get married. So we know he's talking, when he's, talk, when he's using this word here in this context, he's meaning sexual acts outside of marriage. Jesus does the exact same thing. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus uses this word. He says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now notice there that Jesus lists porneia, sexual immorality, right alongside adultery. So he doesn't use it as a general term for all sexual immorality. He uses it as, as a specific term for, for sexual acts of unmarried people. Okay? So you see the word adultery, 
we understand that means sexual unfaithfulness in marriage. We see the word sexual immorality or pornea used like this. We understand that generally it's referring to sexual relations for people who are not married. Now, here's another question we need to ask. Why would Paul pick sexual immorality as an example? Go back in verses 9 and 10 if you got it up there. We studied this last week. Listen to what Paul says. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't just be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, then he goes on a few verses later and says the body is not for sexual immorality. Couldn't he have said the body is not for drunkenness? Couldn't he have said that? Couldn't he have said the body is not for swindling people? The, the body is not for adultery? He, he could have picked other things, but he didn't. He picked one of those out of the list. He said the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, the question to me, I always want to know these things. Well, why would he do that? Why would he pick sexual immorality? Well, I think there's a few reasons for that. Number one, if you all remember when we very first started this lesson... Corinth was a city that was known as for sexual promiscuity. Remember, we compared Corinth to what city in America? Las Vegas. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. I mean, you went to lot. I mean, Corinth. There was a. It was a. It was a trade route. There was a lot of sailors came through there. There was several temples to the uh, uh, goddess Aphrodite where they practiced temple prostitution. They had all kind of things going. In fact, there was a saying in the ancient world, to play the Corinthian meant that you were sexually promiscuous. That's, how, that's what kind of reputation that city had. So it was something that the church saw every single day. They, they dealt with it every single day. Secondly, of all the sins listed by Paul, sexual immorality is probably the most common to the most people. Not everybody struggles with drunkenness. Not everybody struggles, struggles with being a thief. Not everybody struggles with homosexuality or adultery. But pretty much everybody at some point in their life is going to struggle with sexual immorality. They're going to struggle with that, okay? especially, especially young people. So I think it's probably the most, one of the most common sins, and so he wanted to deal with that. But most importantly... Sexual immorality, along with adultery and homosexuality, is a sin unlike other sins. And we're going to talk about that today, okay? In fact, sexual immorality is more harmful than getting drunk. Sexual immorality is more harmful than being a thief. And so I think it was something that Paul wanted to deal with um, specifically. So this is how he begins to deal with it. Let's look at verse 15. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Now, let's start there. What does Paul mean by telling me that my body is a member of Christ? Well, there's a lot of scriptures I could give you here, but I'm going to just give you one. And that is Romans 8 9. Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Listen, if you are a Christian, then the Bible is very clear that two things are true about you. Number one, the Spirit of Christ Himself lives in you. Okay? 
You don't have to go somewhere to find Him. He is right there inside of you. He goes everywhere with you. And number two, because of that, you belong to Him. Your mind, your body, your soul, your spirit, everything about you belong to Him. Paul will tell us later, you were bought with a price, the death of God's only Son. Therefore, you belong to Him. Your body is His. And He is right there. He is... You know, we talk about demon possession. I have been... Christ-possessed. I'm God-possessed. He is in me. He owns me. I am His. My, when you go look at it, listen, my eyes are His eyes. My tongue is His tongue. My, eye, my mind is, is His mind. Whatever behavior you participate in, He's there. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not me. It's not Derek anymore. These aren't Derek's hands, Derek's eyes, Derek's ears. These are Christ's hands, Christ's eyes, Christ's ears. Okay? Listen, can you imagine if Jesus was here with you this morning? Can you imagine somebody saying, Hey, Jesus, I'm going to go over here and commit adultery. Would you come with me? Can anybody imagine doing that? I'm going to come over here and watch this pornographic movie. Would you, Jesus, would you come, come with me and sit with me while I watch this? Does that, is that ridiculous? It, it's almost blasphemous, but can I tell you that every time a Christian watches pornography, every time a Christian has sex outside of marriage, every time a Christian commits adultery, they are dragging Jesus Christ right along with them. It's no different. It's no different whatsoever. I mean, you are taking Him with you when you do those things if you're a Christian. So Paul goes on to say, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. And Paul says, never. You would never do that. Now, this is kind of an odd thing, because Paul mentions something here just kind of out of the blue, and that is prostitution. Why does he, why does he mention that? Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier that in the ancient world, you know, there, we said this last week, when you look at the Corinthian church, they're so messed up. They got people in the church committing incest. They're suing one another. They come to the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 and they're getting drunk. I mean, this is a church that is messed up. And most of us sit there and think, well, don't they know not to do those things? The Bible says, but see, they didn't have a Bible. The Corinthians, they were Gentiles. They didn't read the Old Testament. They didn't know what the Old Testament said. And the New Testament didn't exist yet. That, that's what Paul's doing. He's writing Scripture as he's writing these letters. So they didn't have anything. All, all they really had was their culture. That's all they knew. They brought everything into the church with them. And in their culture, uh, religion basically was a bunch of cults. Cults to different goddesses. Uh, the Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, Venus, Athena. And most of these cults, especially to the female gods, involved temple prostitution. In fact, Corinth had several temples, probably four or five different temples around the city dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. And those temples would employ temple prostitutes. Okay? So for them, prostitution was just a way of life. It wasn't illegal. It was practiced everywhere. It was something that nobody said you couldn't participate in. In fact, they had actually taken prostitution and made it part of their religion. So for them, sex, prostitution, religion, it all just, it all just went together. And, and Paul's trying to address this. This is what he's doing. Because they got a mess on their hands. They, don't, they, are, they are completely 
perverted in the way that they think about these things. And he's trying to, trying to straighten them out. So imagine Paul coming to these people, who, by the way, every religion they've ever known employed prostitution, let's just say. Aphrodite, Venus, Apollo, all those things. And he comes and says, look, this religion, it's got nothing to do with that. This Christianity, we don't do that kind of thing. Now, he's telling this to them, and you can imagine what they're saying. And we covered this last week. See, to them, what you did with the body was just physical. It had no eternal significance, no moral significance whatsoever. So he's telling them, you cannot have sex with a prostitute. And they're like, come on, Paul. I mean, come on, be real. It's just, it's just a physical act. It don't mean anything. It has no moral significance. It has no eternal significance. What's the big deal? Now, this is where how Paul addresses that, that question. Look at verses 16 through 17. Paul says this, Don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And he's quoting Genesis 2.24 right there. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, Paul, what he wants them to understand, something that they have no concept of in their culture, what he wants them to understand is that sex, having sex with someone, is far more than just a physical act. And to make his point, to prove what he's saying, he goes to the only place he can go, and that is to the Bible. He goes to truth. He doesn't say, this is my opinion. He goes back to the very beginning when God created a man and a woman and He instituted His gift of sexual relations. In other words, to explain the role of sex and what sex means and what sex does, Paul goes back to the very beginning. He quotes Genesis 2.24. Let's read it again. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now these are some really interesting verses. The word translated join there is the Greek word kalamonos, and it literally means glue. That's what that word means. The root word of join means glue. In fact, if you go back and look at it, it, it you know, back then they didn't have welding machines. They didn't have, but that's really what the word means. It's a really strong form of united, joined. The Old Testament says cleaved. It literally means they've been welded together or glued together. That's what that word means. It's not just a contract that you come in, hey, let's get married, and if it don't work out, that's no big deal. That's not what that word means at all. It means, it means these two come together and they have been joined together. They've been glued together. They've been welded together. Now, you see, the world, our world today, and, our, and, and the world has always been this way. Our modern culture, we think, is different, but it's no different. You see, the world has always tried to redefine sex as a personal right. In other words, this is my body. I do with it what I want to do with it, and nobody tells me. Okay? In other words, the world wants to make sex a personal choice. No different than should I buy a house or rent a condo? Should I have sex or not have sex? It's just a personal choice, whatever I want to do. The world always has wanted to take sex away from God, take it outside of religion, and just treat it as a personal choice. The problem with that is, is that God designed sex to be so much more than that. He designed it so that when two people come together, it not only involves a uniting of their bodies, 
but it, it, it involves a uniting of their spirits, a uniting of their heart, a uniting of their lives. Think about this for one second. Give me a little bit of, if you will, give me a little bit of artistic license here for just a minute. Let's go back to the beginning of time, before God creates the world, okay? And He's in heaven, and He's planning this out. And by the way, I believe God plans. I don't think He just sits up there and snaps His fingers and it happens. I believe He saw, sat down and thought it all out. This is how it's all going to work. Because we're His image, and that's what we do, don't we? we? We plan, we think, we reason. I believe God did all that. So just give me a little bit of artistic license for a minute. So God's up in heaven. And he's thinking, I want to create a man and a woman. And I want them to have children. Okay? And I want them to, to procreate. I want them to have children and populate the earth. So I'm going to create this thing called sex. I'm going to make them different physically so they fit exactly perfect together. Everything, it takes a man, it takes a woman. They come together. I'm going to put this strong desire in them called sex. And they're going to, they're going to populate the earth. Sex is going to make sure that happens. But... He's thinking in his mind, I don't want them to be like animals. I raised, I raised some chickens. Anybody here ever raised chickens and watched a rooster? Let me tell you, a rooster is shameless. A rooster is absolutely shameless. God's like, I don't want them to be like roosters. I don't want them to be chasing after every... I don't want a man to chase after every woman he sees. And I don't want a woman to chase after every man that they see. I don't want it to be like that. I want them to be a family. I want them to come together as a family, and I want them to, to nurture children. You know, I want a man to, to impregnate a woman and have kids and run off and impregnate another woman, and the kids are just sitting there to be raised by... That's not what I want. That's not how, how he sees it happening. He said, I want them to nurture one another. I want them to stay together. I want them to raise children and teach them about me. I want to show them what a, what a man and a woman is supposed to look like in a family. I want that to be, to be like that. See, to, to be a family, children need stability. They need a mother and a father who's going to kind of be there throughout time. Go back to Genesis 2.24. What did it say? For this reason, a man shall leave his... Who? His father and his mother. Not his mother because his daddy's run off. He leaves his father... In other words, it, it, it goes down the line. Then he becomes a father and a mother. And they raise their children. That's how it's designed to be. I want to build a family... So what's going to keep them together? What's going to keep a man and woman together? And God says, I know what I'll do. I'll make sex more than just a physical act. That's how I'll do it. I'll make it so that when a man and woman have sex, it unites them, not just physically, but it, in, it unites them in their spirit. It glues them together. It welds them together in their hearts. It'll make them like one flesh, one body, one person, united in heart and spirit. Is everybody with me? I mean, see, this is how God, we don't under, what we, the world is lost is that it's not just a physical act. God designed it to be more than that. He designed it to bring a man and a woman together in a way that unites them so that the man just won't run off or the woman won't run off and chase every other, every, everything else. They stay together. That's what sex is designed to do. You see, the world may want sex to be a physical act that doesn't mean anything, but God designed sex to glue a man and a woman together. He designed it to consummate a lifetime union between a man and a woman. That's its purpose. That's what it's meant to do. 
Okay? Yes, it gives pleasure. Yes, it's meant to, to, to create children. But beyond that, it's designed to join a man and a woman together. Jesus said this, by the way. Look at Mark 10, 6 through 9. Jesus said this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I asked Kathy yesterday, did we have any glue? I was going to try to do an illustration for you. And I was going to take two pieces of paper, and I was going to glue them together. And then, you know, that's exactly what sex is supposed to do. It glues you together. And, and when you do that, you take that piece of paper, it's no longer two pieces, it's what? It's, it's like one piece. But can I tell you what happens when you try to tear them apart? You tell me. Does, do, they come, do they come apart nice and pretty? Mm-mm. See, that's what happens when you just have sex and have sex and have sex and have sex. You're always leaving a piece of you behind. You cannot separate that union without leaving part of you behind. It's, it's an, it is not a pretty, a pretty thing. You see, he designed male and female bodies differently, so they come together in this act of physical intimacy that joins them together for life. And this, this act of physical intimacy creates a family. And this family unit creates children. What, what we need to understand is this gift is extremely powerful. To, to, to look at sex like it's just some physical act that you just move on, you, you completely misunderstand what God designed that act to do. It, it's kind of like, I was thinking yesterday, it's kind of like dynamite. You know, if you use dynamite correctly, it's extremely powerful and it can be extremely helpful. But you misuse dynamite, you'll kill yourself. You will literally cause extremely bad damage. Right? It's like somebody the other day we were out hunting and we were talking about guns. And, you know, when I was a kid, you literally could ride around. I know young people don't understand this, but you rode around in your truck with a gun in your back window. We all had gun racks. And you just rode around with shotguns. Kids think about that and think, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But see, nobody misused them. It was designed for hunting. It wasn't designed for killing people. It wasn't designed for taking to school. See, if you take something that's used what it's designed for, it's entirely safe. Nobody thinks anything about it. But you take it outside of what it's designed for and you misuse it and, what, and, the, and the repercussions are horrible. They're horrible. And I'm going to tell you, it's the same thing with sex. When you use it within the boundaries of marriage, it is entirely safe and it is to be enjoyed. It is a wonderful thing. You misuse it, the consequences are horrible and deadly. And I'm going to tell you what, if you think that's overreaching, if you think I'm being, I'm just, um, you know, just uh, uh, going too far with that, listen, you need to pick your eyes up and look around. I'm telling you, we live in a world that is staggering under the weight of sexual sin. Let me ask you a question. I want you to raise your hand. How many in this room know of someone that was sexually molested as a child? I want you to raise your hand. Raise them up high. Now, those in the front, look around. You telling me we don't live in a messed up society where children are being sexually abused? Listen, millions upon millions of innocent babies torn apart and aborted and murdered. Women raped, children molested. 
disease, perversion, pornography, sexual exploitation, adultery, divorce, children growing up without fathers, poverty. Listen, that goes back to one thing, sexual sin. We're mis- the world is misusing this powerful gift that God has given us to glue a man and woman together, and we completely abuse it. We've completely misused it, and the world is staggering um, under the weight of the things that, that we've done. I mean, that list just goes on and on. So Paul says this. In the next verse, verse 18, now listen to this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Now, this is really interesting. This is the only place in the Bible that I know of where Paul says run. The only place I know. In fact, look at James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll run from you. Isn't that what it says? Look at uh, Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore put on every piece of God's armor and you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil and after the battle you'll be standing firm. That's the idea of a man standing there and fighting and defeating his enemy and when it's all said and done, he's standing there. That's right, look at me. But when it comes to sexual immorality, Paul says, don't stand. Don't resist. Run. Get out of there as quick as you, as quick as you can. You know, and if, you're, if a young person ever said to me, well, you know, Mr. Derek, I really need to get out there and, and figure out how the world lives. I really need to be aware of these things and show how strong I can be. My response would be, don't be an idiot. You get out of there. You do what the Bible says. You run from it. Don't put yourself in a situation. If you're reading something you don't need to be reading, throw it away. If you're watching something you don't need to be watching, junk it. If you're in situations where you can see compromise coming, get out of there. Run from it. Don't try to be strong. Paul says, flee from it. Run from it. And I want you to notice his reasoning is not because it's so hard to resist, which is true, by the way. But that's not Paul's reasoning, why he tells you to run. His reasoning is that the sin is so destructive. Look what he says. Flee from sexual immorality, verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let me say this first. Listen, every sin is bad. Okay? Every sin corrupts. Telling a lie or getting drunk or or stealing money will send you to hell just as quick as sexual immorality does. Okay? In that sense, all sins are bad, all sins corrupt, but all consequences of sin are not equal. Let me say that again. All consequences of sin are not equal. All sin will separate you from God, but some effects of sin here on this earth are more tormenting, more destructive than other sins. And that is true of sexual sin. It's more harmful because it goes deeper. Okay? It's not just something you do up here. It's not, Paul says you sin against your very own body. You see, sexual immorality cuts to the core of a human being in a way that other sins don't. And the reason is simple. We've already covered it. Sexual sin is intertwined. Not, it's not just physical. It's spiritual. It's intertwined down into your heart and to your mind. It's designed to make glue two people together for eternity. See, not every sin is like that. 
Someone can get drunk or high on drugs, and if they don't do anything stupid like stealing a car or something like that, the, the, the effects of that sin are pretty short-lived. Now, now, don't get me wrong here, right? If you get drunk every single day, I mean, obviously, you, there's a lot of long-term effects, but, but if, a, if somebody just goes out one night and has too much to drink and they get drunk, is it a sin? Yes. But if they wake up the next morning, they got a little hangover and they, they move on. Sex isn't like that, guys. You don't just walk away from a one-night stand and thought, okay, well, that's no big deal. You know, it was a mistake, but no big deal. We'll just move on. Sex doesn't work like that, Paul says. Not at all. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Screwtape Letters, said this, Every time a man and a woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established between them which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Let me say that again. Every time a man and a woman enter into a sexual relationship, even if it's a one-night stand, he said that relationship either has, that bond has to be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. You see, the world, the world's a funny thing, right? They, they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. You ever notice that? We, the, that's kind of like all of us, isn't it? Think about this for a second. The world will constantly tell you it's a personal choice, it's just a physical act. It's just sex. It don't mean anything until somebody's raped. You see, if, if sex is just a physical act, and it don't really, it's, it's nothing more than a physical act, well, why is rape any different than just getting beat up? Everybody with me? But it is, isn't it? We know it. The world treats it worse because it is worse. Because there's a violation there. Not just a physical violation, but a spiritual violation, a heart violation. The world knows that. You see it all the time. You can take somebody that's sexually promiscuous and thinks that sex is just physical until they really fall in love. And all of a sudden, they want that person to be monogamous. Right? You wanted your cake, but now you want the cake all to yourself. Because it's different. You see, the world knows that, but they always want to play these, play these games with it. But, but it's like C.S. Lewis said, God has designed it a certain way. God has designed sex to forge an eternal bond, and it will forge an eternal bond. There's no way around it. You may walk away from it and never see that person again, but you left a piece of yourself there, and she left a piece of your, herself here. There's a bond that gets formed that you can't just walk away from. You see, the fact is, sex is not temporary. Sexual immorality has a way of tearing apart lives and relationships in a way that other sins do not. I mean, that's just a fact. It has a way, sexual sins have a way of tearing apart families, tearing apart relationships that a way that other sins don't. Now, now don't get me wrong, okay? That doesn't excuse other sins. That is not at all what I'm saying. That doesn't mean that drunkenness or gossip or pride or or greed, or any of those other things won't ruin your life. Of course they have the potential to do that. But a plain reading of Scripture always tells us that sexual sin is different. The consequences of it are different. So Paul goes on, the last two verses, and says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, You know, this is a great thing, and we could spend hours on this. Glorify God with your body. Listen, how you eat should glorify God. How you have sex should glorify God. 
How you do anything with your body should always bring glory to Him, not blasphemy to Him. That's what Paul is saying. You're not your own. He dwells inside of you. Now, in the end, Paul says our bodies are not our own and our sexuality belongs to Him as well. He alone should be able to define the parameters for how that's used. And He's done that. And anytime we step outside of His boundaries, we're playing with fire. Okay? We're asking for trouble. Now, before we close... I want to address some fairly common... As many of you know, I led the youth group here for about five years. And uh, I taught all this stuff to, our, to young people. I, don't, I wouldn't teach anything to you. I wouldn't sit here with, a, with, a, with a, a sixth grader or a seventh grader and telling them the exact same things. And I did that. Now, the great thing about teaching young people is they'll tell you... They'll ask you anything. I said this last week. They're not scared of anything. They'll just ask you any questions. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? They want, to, they want to look at every avenue of it, right? Um, so here's some things that I heard down throughout the years. How about this one? You've probably heard it. Well, it's not wrong if we love each other, right? If we really love each other and we're really committed to each other, then it's not wrong. Well, unfortunately, when you read the Bible, the Bible makes no distinction between loving sex and unloving sex. It makes no, you'll, you'll not find that anywhere in the Bible. The only distinction you'll find in the Bible is between married sex and unmarried sex. That's the only thing. doesn't have anything to do... In fact, all the reasons that Paul says about joining yourself to a prostitute, it's the same exact reasons for joining yourself to someone that you love. It's the same reasoning. It's a, it's a union that's meant to be permanent. Right? And, and you, may, you may stay with that person a year. You may stay with that person ten days. At the end of the day, if you break apart with them, you misuse God's gift. So it's very clear in Scripture. Sex within marriage is approved by God. Sex outside of marriage is, is sin. How about this one? I had a, a young person tell me this one thing. Well, that was in the olden days. Right? That was the olden days when the Bible was written. But this, everything is different now. Um, I, I don't get that at all. <laughs> you know, in fact, if you go back to the list, go back and look at the list that Paul gives us. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, he gives you a list. Greed, drunkenness, idolatry, thievery, homosexuality, sexual immorality, adultery. You know, they list a lot of other things, don't they? Getting drunk, being greedy, being jealous, you know, uh, all kind of stuff. We don't have no problem understanding that greed is a sin, or idolatry is a sin, or getting drunk is a sin, why would sex all of a sudden, because we're not in the olden days anymore, be any different? Let me tell you, the Bible says very clearly Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Cultures change, society changes, morals change in this world, but God does not change. His Word does not change. His character more than anything, does not change. Who He is does not change. He remains exactly the same. How about this one? Oh, we're married in God's eyes. Now this is one, this is a good one. Because I'm seeing this more and more. We're seeing people coming together and living together more and more. Not only young people, folks, but older people. I know somebody... And, and I actually, I've, I know of uh, three different situations where this has happened, where a man and a woman, an older couple, probably in their 70s, came to somebody that I know and asked that person to marry them. 
Because so their spouses, everybody with me, got two old people in their 70s. Their, their, their spouses died. They came to somebody I know and said, we want you to marry us, but we don't want the government to know anything about it. In other words, we want you to marry us so we're married in God's eyes, but we don't want to be in the, married in the government's eyes so we can keep our Social Security. That, folks, that happens way more than you think. Way more than you think. In other words, see, they want this, they want to be, they want this thing, I'm married in God's eyes, but I ain't married in, the, in, in Uncle Sam's eyes. Right? So, so how does that go? Again, you're seeing and hearing this more and more. Now, on one level, it sounds kind of okay, right? you got these two people, they want to go to a preacher, they want to get married, and it sounds like they're committed to each other, so what's really wrong with that? Well, let me give you a few things, okay? And, and by the way, is, is sincere commitment synonymous with marriage? If you're really super committed to one another, then is that really the same as being, as being married? If you're really heartfelt resolution, I'm going I'm to be with this person for the rest of my life, but I just don't want to go down and get a, a marriage license. Is that, is that okay? Um, and does it justify what would otherwise be considered sexual immorality? I want to give you a few things. And this is off of Scripture. First of all, let me tell you this. Being legal matters. Okay? I'll start kind of with the lower ones, and I'll work up real quick if I can. Being legal matters. The Bible tells us in Romans 13.1, everyone must submit to governing authorities. Okay? It also tells us in Acts 5.29, when Peter... Y'all remember the story where they were told, don't preach Jesus anymore? And they basically said, we got to obey God rather than men. So what the Bible teaches us is that we are to submit to the government unless the government tells us to do something that is against God's Word. In other words, if the government comes along and says, you have to marry a homosexual couple, we would say no, and we would accept the consequences. We would just accept the consequences. In that, in that instance, we don't submit to governing authorities because it's against God's Word. But if the government says, you must do X to be considered legally married, and X doesn't, go against God's Word, then that's what we're to do. Listen, what does it say to people when we go around commending marriage, but we won't submit to it ourselves? What does that say to the world? I mean, what kind of testimony is that? Let me tell you something else. And listen to me very closely here. Ceremony and symbols matter. Not only does being legal matter, ceremony and symbols matter. Listen to this. What would you say to somebody if they walked up in you and say, you know what, I'm committed to God in my heart, but I don't need to be baptized. What would you say to that person? You'd say, well, that's, that's ridiculous, right? See, does baptism save them? No. But baptism is what? It's a symbol to the world of their faith in Christ. And Jesus said the first thing you need to do is get baptized. Show the world this symbol. Show the world that you belong to Him. Listen, symbols matter. Ceremonies matter. God intends and commands that we communicate our commitment to Him through the ceremony or the symbolism of baptism. In the same way, folks, marriage is more than a commitment. Marriage is a symbol to the world that I'm committed to her and I'm committed to do it God's way. Let me say that again. 
the, the marriage ceremony, I, I married two people last year. And in both those ceremonies, we talked, we read it in front of all these people, and we talked about how the, 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 the ceremony of wedding and the symbology of being married reflects the symbology between God and the church. We've all read that in Ephesians, right? So, so we have to make sure that our ceremonies and our symbolisms uh, reflect correctly what we're supposed to be doing. The marriage always represents a covenant, and covenants are always accompanied by signs and ceremonies. Now listen, marriage is far more than a ceremony. Okay, We know that. But that doesn't mean that we dispense with the ceremony. The ceremonies and the symbols are part of the way we portray the glory and the beauty of marriage, not just to ourselves, but to the world. That, that stuff matters, guys. I mean, it, it absolutely matters. I'll, I'll give you an example. How about Mary and Joseph? They matter. You go back and you look at Mary and Joseph. They were engaged to be married. And by the way, a Jewish engagement wasn't like ours. When you engaged, when, when you went, entered into an engagement with a Jewish girl, in order, breaking that engagement was like you had to have a, a writ of divorce. I mean, if you could say anyone was already married in God's eyes, it would be Mary and Joseph. I mean, that, their bond that they had entered into was already before God, but they weren't sexually active. And you could say, well, they weren't sexually active because she, but they weren't sexually active before she got pregnant with Jesus. See, they, they understood, Mary and Joseph did, even though they were fully committed to one another, spiritually, emotionally, right? They understood they're not really married until they perform that ceremony. Now, now don't get me wrong, guys. I mean, this, this is the way kids are. Well, what if you're on a desert island, right? What if you're on a desert island and there's no government? Listen, if you're on a desert island and there's no government, then you have a ceremony, before God, and you get married. And I got no problem with that whatsoever. People, listen, people have been married for thousands and thousands of years with no governments. Everybody with me? But they held that ceremony before the society, before their culture, before their family, and they pledged themselves to each other in front of God, and in God's eyes, and in their family's eyes, and everybody, they were married. However your culture says, this is how you do it, it's okay, it's okay to do it that way, if that makes sense. Okay, so I'm not saying, you know, again, kids come up with all these weird things. But you can't, to go to somebody and say, I want you to marry us in God's eyes, but I don't want the government to know about it? No. No. In fact, if you came to me and said, Derek, but if, but if we do this, she's going to lose her Social Security. And I would say, who do you trust? Do you trust God or you trust Uncle Sam? Trust God. Do it His way. He'll take care of you. Jesus said... Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first His righteousness, and He'll take care of those things. I'd much rather trust Him than, 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 than our government. Way more. Okay? Don't, don't look for loopholes. Look to do it God's way. In the end, God's expectation for His children is crystal clear. Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God says, I've designed it a way, a man and a woman, to come together, and the, and the act of sex will, will glue them or weld them together for life. And that marriage bed is undefiled. It's undefiled. But I will judge the sexually immoral. Don't be deceived, Paul says. Don't pretend 
you can get away with these things because in the end, you can't. Now, one quick thing. Obviously, we have a group of people here like today. You always, you're sitting here and you're, you're sitting here and, you're, and people, someone's teaching you about being sexually pure and you haven't been. And so immediately you got all these, well, what about me? Man, have I ruined my life? Have I, have I done this? Have I done that? You know, I've failed in this area. What is it? Well, now, I've got some very good news. <laughs> Let me tell you, sexual sins may be unlike sins in one way, that they're more destructive. But can I also tell you that in another way, they're just like every other sin when it comes to God's forgiveness. Let me say that again. They may be worse than other sins because they're more destructive. They may be unlike other sins, but I can tell you one thing. When it comes to God's forgiveness, they are exactly like every other sin. His blood is so powerful that it can... It doesn't matter what the sin is. It can cleanse you. Look at 1 John 1, 9. And I love this verse. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to what? What is that word? Cleanse. I was thinking this morning about that, you know, if I took two pieces of paper and I glued them together and I, later on I rip them apart and, and you know, pieces of one stays on everybody. You know what it would look like. And then I took one of those and I glued it to another one. And after a while, I ripped it apart. And then I took that same piece of paper and I glued it to another one. After a while, what would that thing look like? It'd be a mess, wouldn't it? But can I tell you, when Jesus forgives, He cleanses. That means He wipes it clean. That piece of paper is just like it, it, it was never glued to all those other pieces of paper. He can redeem you. He can say, okay, we're going to wipe the slate clean and we're going to start over. I mean, I love that. So, again, if you've, if, if you've had problems with that, if you've failed in that area, be, take courage that God is a forgiving God, and not just a forgiving God, but a cleansing God. Okay? Let's pray. Father.